0: You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 29th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist. I'm Guy Delaunay. Coming up... China unlocked as Beijing finally lifts Covid restrictions but at what cost? The rates of vaccination in China while on the face of it are high they still lag behind. Particularly when you look at people over 60. That's just not adequate protection. Also Brazil's bracing for trouble as Lula's inauguration day approaches we'll be looking at the security concerns. Plus we'll be rummaging through the morning's front pages and getting a roundup of the latest tech news that's all ahead on The Globalist live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Ukraine's military intelligence chief, Karil Budonov says fighting in Ukraine is currently at a deadlock, with neither Kiev nor Moscow able to make significant advances. At least 10 people have died in a fire at a hotel casino in western Cambodia, with around 30 people injured, and ethnic Serb protesters will start dismantling the barricades that have been in place in North Kosovo for almost three weeks this morning, following an announcement by Serbia's president, Alexander Vucic. Now, China's zero Covid policy might have restricted the spread of coronavirus there, but it also meant that people endured almost three years of extremely strict lockdowns. Beijing only relented after street protests in November, scrapping its most severe measures like the wildly unpopular quarantine camps. Now it says it'll reopen its borders next month, not just allowing foreign visitors in, but enabling Chinese citizens to travel from a country where Covid is currently raging. To say that other countries are nervous would be an understatement. The US is considering restrictions on arrivals from China, and Japan, India and Malaysia are among the countries which have already announced their own measures. Well, joining me now here in the studio is David Schlesinger, an independent advisor and commentator on media, journalism and China. Now, David, you know, I've said the world is a bit nervous about this. Is the world right to be nervous?
1: Well, today, even North Korea banned Chinese citizens from entering North Korea. When you're too chaotic for North Korea, I think you know you have a problem. I I do think the world is nervous. China had a very strict, you could even call it draconian regime for uh, for three years. And that was very successful until it was not. Mm -hmm. While it was successful, cases were low. But that lulled people into a false sense of security. They did not get booster vaccines. They did not prepare. And now that they suddenly took all the restrictions off, COVID is surging. Everyone I speak to in China, Mm. all my friends, all all my contacts, they're ill. Uh, They're they're (laughs) hacking. It is really scary. Young people, middle-aged people. It's it's everywhere. And uh, look, we've got three years of pent-up demand for plane tickets within China, not only domestic travel, but foreign Mm -hmm. travel. And we just don't know what will happen as COVID races through a country of 1.4 billion people. It's very likely... that you could have new variants come out. The last thing the world needs is a new variant racing through and sending us back two years to a world of lockdowns and masks again. I I think the world is right to be nervous.
0: China's uh, attitude towards releasing information about the virus and the prevalence of it in China has been notoriously opaque. I suspect it's no more transparent now. So how are we able to assess from our vantage point outside China what's actually happening now?
1: That's the real problem. China restricts information, uh, not only for journalists like you and me, but more importantly to scientists. And uh, scientists are unable to do the genome mapping of what's actually on the ground in China right now. So we don't know if there are new variants emerging. We don't know if this is just uh, bog standard Omicron Mm. going through, in in which case we can just sort of shrug and say, OK, people will be sick for uh, a while, but we're vaccinated against it's okay or whether this is something new again so I uh, you know if I ran the world if I were a diplomat I would uh, try to uh, trade mRNA vaccines in return for information for access I, I would put a lot of pressure on because I think You can't just fight this by saying, oh, no Chinese visitors or Chinese visitors must have a negative test. That's not doing anything really other than putting a sticking plaster on the problem. What you really have to do is have an agreement for transparency, an agreement for research, an agreement for mutual work towards solving this.
0: I saw yesterday the Washington Post was uh, scraping posts from uh, Douyin and Weibo in an effort to try and work out the prevalence of, of COVID in China. Have we got any better tools than that? No, it's, it's, uh, China's not
1: releasing up-to-date data. Uh, yes, you can see a lot on social media. You can do things like talk to your friends like I've like, mm. like done and you get an anecdotal sense of what's going on, but that's not very helpful. Uh, we don't know. All we can assume is that because... China is not very well vaccinated. Uh, only w- while about 90% have had one or two vaccines, mm. which is fine, only uh, about 50% have had a booster. Uh, and you compare that to the West, where people like me in their 60s are up to their their fourth uh, booster already and more importantly I, in the west we've been using the mrna vaccines which have an efficacy of around 90 95 percent the chinese vaccines have an efficacy of only around 60 65 percent mm. so they're not vaccinated when they are vaccinated they're not vaccinated very well I, it could be quite chaotic.
0: Yeah, and in, in in terms of how this has gone down in China, I mentioned that we had these street protests that caused this. I mean, that does seem to be in the trigger for, for 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 Beijing to relent. Or am I reading too much into it?
1: I, I would say you're reading too much into it. I, I think there, oh was a, there was there was there was a confluence of events. Uh, I think most importantly is that the policy which had been working stopped working. It was a fine policy when it really did keep zero COVID to zero. But from the middle of the year, there were cases popping up all over the place. So they were having to have these lockdowns of cities, lockdowns of Mm. factories. That had a huge effect on the economy. And I would say that is the real key. The economy is cratering, number one. Number two, China's reputation as the workshop for the yeah. world is really damaged. You look just this week, Tesla stock, Apple stock have both taken huge hits because their Chinese factories are not making the products that
0: they want to be able to sell. There was a sense, though, wasn't there, that Xi Jinping was fairly relaxed about this because he, he you know, turned against China's big business—you know, people like Jack Ma—but I mean, not more, more than just persona non grata. I think we could say that that you know the big tycoons who'd emerged, particularly in tech industries, I think, was seen as a threat by Xi Jinping, and and he was reasonably relaxed about restrictions hitting those sort of people. Has um, there been a change of heart on that front?
1: You have to keep people fed and happy any government in the world. Xi Jinping is facing youth unemployment of 19%. That is a scary figure. Uh, The entire security of the Chinese Communist Party is based on the fact that people have jobs, they can buy cars, they can buy houses, they can go on trips. That's under threat now. Uh, So, yeah, he may be happy to go against an individual entrepreneur who gets too big for his boots, but the economy in general has to be supported for the Communist Party to have security.
0: And is this current situation, we know that he's obviously been re-elected for this, uh, uh, the, the phrase which gets bandied around as this unprecedented third term as, as China's leader, but has his position been undermined in any way, or has his authority been undermined by this pivot away from the zero COVID policy?
1: It's so hard to tell. Uh, It it is so hard to tell. There is a lot of anger around. If you look at Chinese social media, if you talk to people in China, there is a lot of anger around. But it doesn't, People will not say publicly or even in a forum that could be overheard that it goes to sea personally. That is much too dangerous. So the anger right now is focused on local officials, and it's also focused on the very protesters you mentioned. Mm. People are saying, who are these slacker idiots who just wanted to eat, drink, and be merry? They're the ones who've gotten us into it. So so there's a lot of anger around, Mm. including at the protesters themselves. So far, there's no public anger at sea, but I'm sure there are a lot of people who are private. Angry at C because, as you say, he is in this unprecedented position. That means that all decisions ultimately are his responsibility. And he seems to have messed this one up pretty badly.
0: Well, thank you very much for that, David. Uh, That's David Schlesinger there. This is The Globalist on Monocle 24. UBS has
2: over
1: 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance
3: today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at ubs.com.
0: You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle 24, live from Studio One at Midori House here in London. It's 7.10 in the morning, and I'm Guy Delaunay. Now, a controversial president has voted out of office, but he's reluctant to relinquish power. His supporters make wild claims about a stolen election and call for military intervention. That's not a summation of the US two years ago, but a reflection of what's happening in Brazil right now. Luis Lula da Silva will be sworn in as president on Sunday. But the outgoing head of state, Jair Bolsonaro, has yet to confirm that he'll participate in the inauguration ceremony. Meanwhile, Bolsonaro's more fanatical supporters have been taking to the streets, calling for a military coup to save Brazil, as they put it. So, is there any danger of a Brazilian rerun of the 6th of January insurrection that we saw in the US? I'm joined now by Fiona McCauley, the Professor of Gender, Peace and Development at the University of Bradford. Welcome back to The Globalist, Fiona. Um, Now, these protests that we've been seeing in Brazil, not just this week, but in previous weeks, how well do they reflect pro-Bolsonaro sentiment in Brazil, do you think?
3: I think they represent the most radical elements of it. I think that the majority of people who voted for Bolsonaro and were disappointed at the fact he was defeated have, have essentially accepted the fact that there will be a transition of power and that Lula will take office. But this radical rump have been causing a great deal of, uh, of problems. The, first of all, there was a, a trucker's blockade of highways across the country and then informal camps were set up outside uh, military barracks. And at the moment, there's one outside the army HQ um, in Brasilia. And I think the real fear is not so much about an organized opposition to the transition to power, but really about the kind of the rogue individual with a rifle who takes Mm. matters into their own hands. And I think that's the fear at the moment.
0: I, uh, I like your phrase, radical rump. I don't particularly like what it stands for. But what about Bolsonaro himself? Am, am I right in thinking that he's never actually come out and said, OK, I accept that I lost. Um, let's move forward. Uh, there was sort of word which was put about that, yeah, he accepted the result. But did he ever make it explicit himself?
3: Well, after um, he lost the election, he spent 10 days in silence, not talking to anybody or coming out of the presidential palace, when he eventually gave a press uh, conference. It was sort of quite odd. The wording was sort of careful in the sense that he said there will be a transition of power because his team actually had just got on with things in the background. He never said Lula has won the election. He never said I was defeated. Um, and he said, I know my supporters are upset with the result because of all of the problems that there were with the electoral system. Now, that's the kind of Trumpian allegation, yeah. in which there's no substance. So, no, he never actually said the words. I lost, Lula won.
0: And the inauguration on Sunday, traditionally, there's a sash of office which is handed over. Um, it doesn't sound like he's particularly keen on, on doing the handing over.
3: Uh, well, no, because apparently, we seem to think that he's gone to Miami with his family overnight. Um, so he's he has clearly indicated he'll have no part in that um, handing over of power. The vice president who is an army general, has similarly indicated he's not going to do it because it's the president's job. So now there's a whole debate about whether it's the head of the Senate, the head of the Chamber of Deputies, who's going to do it? It's, it's not quite unprecedented, but it is extremely unusual that there will be no predecessor to hand over the, the sash to the successor.
0: Where's the sash? Is it currently living it up in Miami?
3: <laughs> no, I don't think he's taken it with him, much though he, he he would like to have done so. I believe he's in a safe place somewhere in the Senate.
0: Uh, you talked about this idea, I mean, and I recognise this because I've been talking to people about Kosovo all week and the potential for, you know, not organised in uh, organised conflict, but... A lone individual with a gun who can cause problems. Well, we've had reports of this already in Brazil. We had over the weekend a Bolsonaro supporter arrested after allegedly placing explosives in a fuel truck near Brasilia's airport, hoping to sow chaos ahead of the inauguration. That sounds, uh, you know, rather dangerous.
3: Well, yes, and there have been other bomb scares as well. And I think if you look at the background to this, the very first thing that Bolsonaro did when he came into office was to um, liberalise gun ownership. So you've seen an incredible increase in the number of registered firearms. So it's now 4.5 million registered guns, That's the the, the legally registered ones. That's a sort of 500% increase. Similarly, there's been a huge boom in what they call registered collectors, marksmen and hunters, And that also is up 500% to around 700,000 people. And many of those folk are very Mm pro-Bolsonaro. They are the ones with the guns and with motivation and ideological motivation to do something. Because the people who camped out on the streets still protesting and asking for the army to intervene genuinely believe that, that Brazil is under a sort of existential threat from communism, from godlessness and so forth. So, I think that is the real problem, is Mm. how do you find that rogue individual in in the crowd of people that will be turning up on Sunday to celebrate the the inauguration?
0: Just briefly, Fiona, how do you think it will go on Sunday?
3: I think it will be extremely tense. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there are a lot of um, provisions being put in place at the moment, but it's a very tense and fluid situation with threats being uncovered all the time. And the... The federal police are not exactly pro-LULA. They have been politicised during these last four years. So I think there are many variables and a lot of nervousness, um, particularly for an open-air event. Um, And there is a genuine fear, I believe, that there will be not just chaos um, perhaps a bomb perhaps you know people being killed but particularly of an assassination attempt is, it's really not impossible at all that that might be attempted so I, I think there'll be a huge sigh of relief once the inauguration has been safely conducted
0: and we will of course keep an eye on it here on Monocle 24 thank you very much for joining us Fiona that's Fiona Macaulay, and here's what else we're keeping an eye on today Ukraine's intelligence chief, Karylo Budonov, says fighting in the country is currently at a deadlock. Neither Kiev nor Moscow are able to make significant advances. Meanwhile, the southern Ukrainian city of Kherson has remained under bombardment from Russian forces. They retreated to the east bank of the Dnipro River when the Ukrainian forces retook the city last month. At least 10 people have died in a fire at a hotel casino in western Cambodia. Authorities say the fire broke out at Grand Diamond City in Poipet, with around 30 people injured. Police are still working to determine the cause of the fire. Ethnic Serb protesters in North Kosovo will start removing the barricades which have blocked roads and border crossings for almost three weeks. Serbia's President Aleksandar Vucic confirmed the move after weeks of rising tensions. The EU and US have been mediating between Belgrade and Pristina. They say none of the protesters will face prosecution. This is The Globalist, stay tuned. And it's 7.18 in the morning here in London. I'm Guy Delaunay. But now let's have a flick through some of the day's newspapers with Latika Bork, the journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age here in London. Latika is right here in Studio One in Midori House. Welcome to The Globalist Latika. It's
2: great to see you, Guy.
0: And, uh, OK, we're having a virtual flick through. There's no rustling. I, 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 no I miss the papers today. to rustle, but, you know, I don't know. I,
2: Cue the, sound effect.
0: It doesn't really work. No yeah. n- no, Foley artists here, I'm afraid. But we we do have... I, I love this uh, this, this this headline for the first story that you've got in The Guardian. Uh, number 10 Concerned MPs engaged in sex and heavy drinking on trips abroad. You know, this is
2: a really interesting story. It's been bubbling away for a few weeks now, uh, amid reporting across from the lobby here in the UK that a lot of these APPG, so that's all parliamentary uh, friendship groups, are getting given what are essentially junkets, junkets guys. Yeah. Uh, they go to countries, some are allies. Countries, some are more concerning countries, shall we say. Right. And they're plied with alcohol, they stay up late, they party, they perhaps engage in behaviour they might not otherwise engage in at home. And there's also been a suggestion in reporting in the last few days that actually they're targeted and that on one mm. trip prostitutes were arranged for male MPs to be waiting in the hotel rooms. Now, of course. This is spy one oh one behaviour, right? Yeah. Uh, this is very easy to 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 compromise MPs, lawmakers, embarrass them, get them uh, I guess old-fashioned compromise on them. Uh, and finally, what's really interesting is that these stories have been going on for weeks and weeks, and it's only yesterday uh, in the very quiet holiday period that number ten, um, issues a statement on behalf of Rishi Sunak saying he's very concerned about some of these reports and he's given a little reprimand to MPs saying the, mm. the Prime Minister expects the MPs to be working very hard a, a in the national a, interests. A lot
0: of us more cynical types who've, who've seen you know MPs on junkets would say, well no, I expect this behaviour absolutely to, to go ahead. <laughs> you know, but that doesn't mean that it's of course right. It's not how we should be having our parliamentary representatives representing the, the United Kingdom.
2: I think the worrying thing here is that nobody has gotten to these MPs before they go on junket number one, because normally, certainly in Australia, MPs and ministers are told by our security agencies very clearly up front, here's how you behave in countries of concern or that may have hostile intent. Here's what they will try and do first and foremost, and here's how you spot it and avoid it. Uh, And, you know, I've had conversations on the private with ministers who who say they don't take phones to countries like China, they don't do anything in their hotel rooms, they don't talk to anybody, they don't hold phone calls. There is no way they are giving anything away um, when they're in the supposedly private quarters.
0: Unbelievable. Anyway, uh, that's... Uh, well, I say it's unbelievable. It's it's depressingly believable in uh, many respects, isn't it? But uh, let's move on to, uh, to Australia, because you are, after all, the, the correspondent here in the UK for the great Australian newspapers that you were right for. And uh, Australia's floating the idea of dropping This is from the competition, isn't it, Latika, (laughs) in The the Australian? Is that allowed?
2: (laughs) This this is broken by a a very good friend of mine, Ben Packham, an excellent journalist, actually, but he does work for my rival newspaper, The Australian. Nevertheless, uh, he has broken a very, very important and interesting Mm -hmm. story here. He's done an interview with the Australian trade minister, Don Farrell, And Mr Farrell has told him that Australia is open to dropping these WTO cases that Australia has brought against China. Uh, And these cases were brought after China unilaterally slapped tariffs on Australian producers in a tit-for-tat or punishment. Uh, for Australia going out very early and calling for an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19, something Mm. China took great exception to and punished Australia for and is still punishing Australia for. This follows a big breakthrough in the relationship last week when China invited Australia's foreign minister to visit Beijing. It was the first visit of a foreign minister in five years. And the relationship between Australia and uh, China under the last government, a conservative government, had really deteriorated to the point where they didn't even have the Chinese ambassador's phone number in Australia when they needed to inform him of something important. There was no dialogue on any level. What's also really interesting is that the Prime Minister was asked about this uh, today and he has not denied that Australia might keep this option open. And he's also berated the former government saying, this is uh, me, how a mature government acts and uh, this is all the result of the last government, this is a really extraordinary and important shift in Australia relations, and uh, many perceive mm. Australia to be on the front line with China.
0: How did it, 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 what, what sort of impact did it have that that cooling of relations? Because obviously the commodities boom had really benefited Australia in a big way, uh, but but when China imposed this, this this you know ice age in relations between between the two. How much of an impact did it really have on Australia? Because I didn't really notice it being particularly, you know, impactful.
2: That's because Australia is uh, experiencing an iron ore boom. It's also experiencing a gas boom. And uh, it's got a huge lithium boom coming mm. around the corner. So our lithium commodity... can
0: go boom if you're not careful.
2: <laughs> Indeed. Our commodities keep our economy in very good shape mm. and did so during the pandemic. But nevertheless, of course, this was a hit to specific producers. The question is if these markets are opened back up, how reliable Australian producers will see the Chinese market. China could have done itself some damage here. Yeah. Of course the trade will will resume, but will there be that level of trust between producers and their Chinese counterparts? not so sure.
0: And finally, uh, Latika, we've got this, uh, I, I suppose, grim news. I mean, they've got a nice picture here in the Times of a, a mother and child on a beach with beach huts behind them and looking happy to be in the sun. But the headline, UK weather 2022 was Britain's warmest year on record. Rather concerning.
2: Well, it depends. If you like sunshine, you've got 9% more of it in this year.
0: Probably good for Britain's mental health, especially bearing in mind all the shenanigans we've been going through.
2: Indeed. But we had less rainfall. In fact, the south mm. of England had had, uh, a third less we're than making up for it was it now. expecting <laughs> we are but even the cold start to december mm. and it's been a really freak cold start has not been enough to take down the average temperature and the met office said yesterday that the calculations are now at the point and we're still a couple of days from the end of the year that the average temperature will this year exceed 9.88 degrees that was the highest average set in 2014 so a lot of these records are getting broken faster faster as the temperature rises and of course who can forget what I would call that absolutely horrific day in July when temperatures peaked at 40 degrees in the UK. I mean that's the highest um, and people don't know how to
0: deal with it. I mean, you know, we, I live in the Western Balkans and we know how to deal with high temperatures. People don't here. It's, it's its that simple.
2: And and it's the same in Australia. You know, you have big buildings, things are air conditioned. It's actually quite pleasant to get around. Uh, in the UK, houses here are meant to build, uh, are built to trap heat, you know, mm. and they're wonderful in the winter. I've still managed to not even turn my heaters on this winter, Whoa. which has been incredible. It's got great insulation. In the summertime, it was horrendous.
0: Yes. That's uh, no, Britain, summertime, horrendous. I think <laughs> those are words which go together well, Latika. Thanks very much for coming into the studio this My morning. Pleasure. Latika Mourke there. We'll be back in a moment.
3: UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivalled network of global experts. That's why at UBS we pride ourselves on thinking smarter, to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
0: Welcome back to The Globalist on Monocle 24, 7.27 in the morning here in London. And that's time to get the latest tech news with Josh Cowles. He's a researcher at the University of Oxford's Internet Institute. Welcome to The Globalist, Josh. Um, Are you on TikTok?
4: I'm not on TikTok, less for security reasons, which is the reasons it's been uh, banned by the US House of Representatives, more because I think the productivity drain based on its algorithm would be just too much and I wouldn't get anything else done. Productivity
0: drain. That's it. That's, that's the issue. My children <laughs> my children use TikTok, but uh, I've, I've never set up an account and I, I, I'm, I'm trying not to. I mean, I should really. I mean, that's the thing and the ways of communicating with people. But the, uh, the US House of Representatives, as you say, this is the news here, uh, they are banning congressional members and staff from downloading TikTok.
4: That's right. TikTok is uh, both uh, insanely popular, particularly amongst young people, such as your your kids, and uh, potentially a security threat, at least as perceived by various US government agencies, which are taking steps to ban the platform. The latest news concerns the US House of Representatives, but it's also banned uh, by the US Army. And a new ban on government uh, use of TikTok in general is going to be signed into law by Joe Biden in uh, in the coming days. And what this amounts to really is a big pushback against the Chinese-owned company, which denies that it Uh, uses much of any uh, data on americans on chinese Mm. servers but nonetheless has a a track record of doing so
0: it did fess up didn't it to tracking those forbes journalists who were writing stories about tiktok and uh, trying to work out who they were meeting by tracking their phones so i mean (laughs) you know (laughs) they're, they're caught with their pants down aren't they
4: that's right. Particularly on, on, on that story, uh, they had to fess up to that, and it's never a good look, really, to be uh, to be tracking journalists to try and stop them writing. negative stories about you. Um, but this points, as I say, to a really wider push against TikTok, not just on the security front, um, but also as it bleeds into um, kind of market deals as well. There's a, a wider uh, investigation of the app coming through uh, in the coming year as well and so this is uh, going to be uh, going to raise some serious questions for the growth of the company at a time when of course big tech across the board is having a tough time
0: yeah talking of which uh, the other story you want to focus on josh is silicon valley staff rushing to offload startup shares as valuations plummet what's going on here
4: that's right. So, uh, employees of both big tech companies um, like Meta as well as uh, the smaller tech, tech companies have been being laid off in their droves in, in recent months and years, uh, recent months, as uh, users, uh, as pro- share prices, excuse me, uh, continue to dwindle. The problem for this is that a lot of these employees are paid in stocks mm-hmm. as well as salary, which means that as soon as they uh, get laid off, they have uh, just a short amount of time to actually vest their shares. This is creating, ironically, a bit of a a vicious cycle because in the industry now, uh, valuations of these companies are taking downtime because these stocks are being sold. So it's creating a bit of a vicious cycle in the industry, which I think may also continue into the new year.
0: So they literally have uh, have to sell off these shares. They're not allowed to keep hold of them and say, OK, I may not work at the company anymore, but I still have a stake in it
4: well it varies by company but i think some of them are trying to get rid of them now fearing a global uh, route of stocks i think they have a, they do have a time limit sometimes 60 days uh, to do so so these private these are these are non floated companies so these private uh, yeah. company stocks are being sold on, on sort of secondary markets who are reporting a massive increase in interest in selling them and uh, consequently a massive decrease in the actual value of the stocks and, themselves.
0: And what's that doing for this sort of venture capital, uh, the, the the mood music within within that community because uh, they're presumably seeing the value of their shares plummet?
4: That's right. It's contributing to a wider sell off in tech and a real tightening of credit at a time when money is becoming increasingly uh, more expensive, um, particularly for these wild bets which we've seen being taken by massive VC firms over the last couple of decades, which have turned into incredible returns in the case of things like Facebook and, and others. But for every uh, Facebook, there's many uh, that don't succeed. And of course, when even the big ones like Facebook are now facing a downturn as well, it really points to a drying up both of capital and potentially of interest in big tech, although maybe that the coming year has some surprises in store.
0: Quite possibly a grim new year for those sort of VC people. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Josh. That's Josh Cowles there joining us with the latest tech news. Uh, that's all for today's programme. Thanks very much to our producers Emma Searle and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and our studio manager Nora Hull. After the headlines, there's more news on the way. The briefing is live at midday in London. The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. Still with me, I'm Gerd Lorne. Thanks very much for tuning in.